Hello, Michael. How you doing? Doing great, man. How are you? Doing so good. Hey, first off, congrats on, on your son. You just had a newborn. I did. Yeah. On April 11th. So literally a month ago. It's uh, <laughs> wow. It is a uh, whirlwind of uh, craziness. But yeah, it's uh, my third. I have two other kids. I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And that's what I've been living and breathing for the past uh, 30 days. It's been a lot of fun. Wow. And is the one month old uh, easy baby, hard baby, or somewhere in between? To be determined. You don't know, like the, the first month for a kid, it's like, it's always a blur because you don't sleep, they're crying, they're dealing with everything. But um, so far, just normal stuff. Nothing, uh, nothing out of the, out of, nothing out of the ordinary yet. Wonderful. Well, congrats again. Uh, that's a really special um, thing to have happen. Yeah. And I appreciate you making time. Uh, I don't know how many cups of coffee you had to have to get through this. Oh, yeah, but, uh, I'm, I'm on my second time. espresso. So that's pretty good for me today. So usually I'm uh, getting I'm averaging about two to three hours of sleep a night. So it's uh, the espresso helps. <laughs> Yeah, well, luckily you have that cool voice, so I wouldn't be able to tell if you're tired. You just sound cool. <laughs> I, I try, Mark. It's, uh, it's, I don't know. It's not that easy, but I try. So, so let's kick it off. Michael, if you could tell uh, the audience a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, so uh, my business, I run a company called Corporate Advisory Solutions. We're a boutique investment and merchant banking firm that specializes in tech-enabled outsourced business services. And our core service line is uh, providing mergers and acquisition services, helping people buy and sell companies. And we have three distinct areas of focus. We do a lot of work in the call center space or contact center space, the debt collection industry, and healthcare revenue cycle management. Awesome. So. I was thinking that sets us up for a really cool topic for today's podcast, and it's all about contact center M&A. Um, what makes uh, different contact center operations more viable? What makes them less viable? When should you buy your competitors? Uh, is technology something that just boosts your metrics, or is technology something that can give you a differentiation? All those sort of questions. So to start off, Michael, in uh, 2020, um, you know, a lot of folks were talking about this great consolidation that was happening. You know, what did you see in 2020 and what are you seeing now in the m and M&A activity across all the areas we cover, including the contact center space, is alive and well. There are a lot of deals happening for a variety of reasons. I'll get into it in a second, but it's very, very active. And this industry, I've been operating in the contact center, call center, BPO area, for nearly 20 years doing transaction work in it, and it is evolved. It is really evolved mainly with technology. When you go back in the day and you look at what a call center used to be like, it's, um, it's really night and day different, especially with new forms of technology, dialers, AI, all the things that you, everything that even you do at Balto, I mean, it just, it is really game changing with where the industry has evolved into. Now, a lot of people view technology in the contact center space as a means to an end. You can kind of hear that sometimes when people are talking about technology. They say, well, you know, we'll bring it on board if the clients are willing to pay for it. 
you know, or uh, we'll bring it on board if there's a clear cost savings. Um, but a lot of folks aren't viewing it in the sense of this can really be a differentiator for your operation. Um, how do you see it? And actually, perhaps more importantly, how do potential acquirers yeah, see so it? Yes, Mark, when, the, when the, the big piece of to your question is around valuation. So when businesses in the call center space that are mainly people intensive, uh, whether you're onshore or offshore, they're going to be valued on a multiple of adjusted EBITDA. Okay. And ultimately, when you think about technology costs, your goal at the end of the day as an operator in this space is to figure out how to get a return on your technology investment that's going to lead to more profitability for you. And that's the name of the game. So if these technology advancements and this quote unquote, the word we hear a lot about is omni-channel, I'm sure you hear about it every day of your life, that word in itself or phrase is conducive with leading to more profitability at the end of the day. And that's ultimately the goal. Can you do things differently with less people and more technology? Our hope is as things continue to evolve, that will be the case. And so we're seeing that convergence occur between technology and people, not where people are going to go away and it's only technology. They've got to work together. And as a result of that, that's driving value right to the bottom line if people are doing it correctly. Super interesting. So one of the, the conflicts I'm curious about is you know, the forward-looking nature of technology. Um, which is that if you are uh, you know, implementing a particularly powerful technology, most of its impact has yet to be realized. And if you think of the internet, um, you know, and you say, oh, you know, a year or 10 years ago, we were connected to everyone across the world. We did the internet. But now we're seeing, oh my God, like the internet is just beginning. Um, so I think that's true on the micro level too for you know, a call center, a contact center operation. Um, where when they make a technology purchase, there is some uh, immediate uh, profitability boost that they get from the technology, but a lot of it is forward-looking. Um, how, how does that manifest in the M&A space? So like everything, right, um, even a business like yours or others, you need to be able to, as a part of your plan when you're selling a business, whether it's to a private equity firm or to a strategic is to lay out a forecast or a three to five year plan of how you see your financial performance evolving. And a lot of that, when you look and start looking under the covers, is around technology and around that technology, whether they are commercializing it or, or had developed it internally, or if they've gone out to the street and bought it off the shelf, whatever it is, it's gotta be built into the thought process around your financial performance. Because as much as a buyer is going to look back historically at your numbers, they need to understand the sustainability of your revenue and EBITDA and growth of your revenue and EBITDA. And I think, frankly, if you don't have the technology components there and modeled out correctly, you're going to leave a lot of money on the table. And so that's what we are focused on a lot when we're taking businesses out to the marketplace. We are trying to understand how those technology investments are going to affect them in a positive manner over a, a, over a short window of time. And we try to capitalize, you know, we try to capture that in our materials and, to, and explain that to the buyer prospects. Super interesting. 
Um, I, I just thought of a kind of a funny analogy. Um, I, my, I come actually from the fitness world. Before Balto, uh, I started a personal training company called Doorstep Fitness, and it was personal trainers direct your home office or local park. And the uh, saying that they have in the fitness and nutrition world is calories in, calories out. And the idea behind that is it doesn't matter whether you had 2,000 calories of cake or 2,000 calories of straight lean chicken, 2,000 calories is 2,000 calories in the weight loss picture, not the health and lifestyle picture because we wouldn't run too well on 2,000 calories of cake. Um, is profitability in, profitability out? A reasonable analogy or is you know profitability that you get from making your people more efficient um, weighed more or less than profitability that you get from technology or other sorts it's of shifting mark it's shifting a lot because before before the technology changes that have been hitting the market people were really just focused on how do I deal with my people what else can I do how do I keep my people in their seats, taking phone calls, taking orders, doing technical support. How can I do that where they're not shifting or, or changing uh, talk times and getting them lower so they can get onto more calls? That's still a huge component to the industry. And frankly, it's still gonna be there for as long as I can see. That technology component is becoming when the buyers are looking at the business, they are really focused on what technology they're using internally, whether they developed it themselves or if they've uh, partnered with the big best-in-class vendors out there. They care a lot because when we get into due diligence, the first one of the first things they're doing is they're bringing in an expert around technology and operations to give a third-party review of their uh, of this company's performance and where there's good, bad, and indifferent. And that, and make recommendations. If they don't like what they're seeing there, likely a deal a, a deal may not happen as a result of that. Huh. So I think you're saying that um, that just modern technology, things like very basic cloud technology and um, and very basic CCAS, and just just doing uh, you know what the market has accepted or where implement technologies where the market currently is that that is is table stakes um and that that could be the thing that causes a deal to go through or not did i hear you, you got right it, on that? Mark. and i think the other piece is you know covid opened up our eyes to the contact center world right because remember people work at home there was only a few companies doing work at home and now that market shifted and now Frankly, everybody has got that capability. And that was a big differentiator a few years ago. People were like, work at home is so different. It needs to be valued differently. Well, now most of the companies out there got, got to work at home within 48 hours. What else is making you different, right? Is it the clients you service? It, is, it, is it the specialty of your agents? Or when you're ordering food and you're chatting with the person who's in India, is that the differentiator? Like, what is it that is, 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 makes you different than the rest of the other players that are, in a lot of buyers' mind, commoditized, Mark? And, and, I, and I'll tell you, we fight that battle a lot. Yeah, so one of the things that makes me think is what differentiators out there are really false differentiators where people say, oh, our differentiator is X. And you go, 
Ah, uh, come on. That's a commodity. Well, the, so, the, the, what are so you saying? Yeah. years ago, the model was, well, I'm servicing a large institution or I'm servicing a big telco provider. Or a, and, and it's great and all to have a on your PowerPoint sales deck, a huge client that is well known to everybody in the world. But at the end of the day, if you're only generating a 5% margin on it, what is the point of doing it, right? So that was a big thing for a while. Like people were like, well, I've got all these huge clients. In the eyes of the buyer, the buyer's like, do I even want those clients because the margins are so thin? So that's one. Another thing that comes up a lot where people are like, well, I really can't sell the business because I'm heavily concentrated with a, a large hospital or a large telco or a large fintech. It's absolutely not the case. You can, and that can be a huge value driver for a strategic because they really want to obtain um, a niche client or a niche service line that they have not perfected yet, onshore or offshore. So those are kinds of things that people always think is a negative, which we look at in our world as a positive. Mm-hmm. So uh, it seems like a good distinction to make would be a BPO contact center and then a corporate contact center where perhaps you know, your business, I'll use the corporate side for a second, is very contact center focused. It might be a really uh, heavy outbound sales operation or uh, maybe you do a ton of your volume through the contact center. So when you look at what the go-to-market model is for that business, um, the contact center is a big piece of it. So that could be you know, one uh, you know, uh, potential acquisition. And then the second would be, you know, a BPO that services this book of clients. Um, and I imagine those two strategies are different if you're trying to get acquired as the former versus the latter. There's no doubt. Uh, there what, there are yeah. companies that are niche specialists in government or in certain markets that are going to be better suited for somebody that's got a big offshore delivery center okay, in India or the Philippines. And they don't have, the company that's selling, they don't have that capability today. So they, in their minds, they're thinking to themselves, what's go, who's going to be a buyer that's going to see strategic value in me, right? Beyond just my list of clients. Like, what am I, and so we get calls a lot by buyers that are over, that have no footprint in the U.S., but want a footprint in the States, and they've got to acquire their way in. So you've got a lot of players that you'd say, that's crazy. What do you mean? Most of the big players have offshore and nearshore capability. You'd be surprised. There's a lot of players that are just domestically oriented. And a lot of that's by design because their clients want it that way. I know one uh, BPO uh, in the U.S. that um, I think they were over 1,200 agents or so across multiple locations in the US and they were bought by a international BPO um, again for that exact purpose of trying to get a footprint in the US and you know my understanding just from the outside without much information is that they were really struggling to get profitability in uh, their US operations and uh, in one of the centers, they had one of their flagship clients leave, which made the entire center unprofitable, and they had to close that down. So, you know, what does the 
uh, almost like a mental checklist of red flags look like where when you're trying to think about whether to do this sort of deal um, and you're trying to acquire a domestic footprint in the U.S., um, you know, how you can evaluate uh, whether that's going to actually achieve that aim or whether, you know, it could be a struggle. Location, location, location. If you've got a call center operation and you're just domestic and you're located in Manhattan, boy, that's going to be a bit, bit of a difficult ride margin-wise for somebody. Now, you can get some great economies of scale with having an offshore delivery platform. But ideally, though, are you going to really want to center there or are you going to want to be in a second or third tiered city in the U.S., Nebraska, Omaha, Nebraska, wherever uh, Midwest tends to be a big location for many of them in order to get the better labor, the better costs and to be able to recruit and bring on additional staff? Those are those are real reasons why you see such a big hub of companies or call center companies that are located at, in those areas for location and labor purposes. And that really, when it comes to the offshore player, they want to be in a lower cost environment. And so they're looking for that as a big item on their checklist. Other items they look for are you know, client base and cross-sell opportunities with the offshore, because a lot of times people say, I don't want to do business with an offshore player. We've had issues in the past, but it's not necessarily offshore, especially when you're dealing with omni-channel with, you know, email, text, chat. Nobody's talking to them. Uh, ver voice, it's all, it's all electronic. Having that delivery overseas could be a significant cost saver for the, for the company, but also for the client too. So all those things get factored into the equation. Do you see more concentration happening in location now because of COVID, or do you see the opposite? Opposite. It just they're still they're still trying to avoid mark those higher cost areas because right now labor's all over the place. The biggest challenge, if you talk to any call center operator, is they can't find people to hire. It is just impossible because of uh, the stimulus and the unemployment benefits. People are making more money unemployed than they are working. So when you've got those dynamics, you've got to be really creative when you have to staff a project. What are you going to do? You can't just tell your clients, say, we can't find anybody today. It just, it's not going to, they're not going to have that client for much longer, which is why the, the, the redundancy, the multi-site, the global footprint becomes even more important, especially in the economy that we're facing in the U.S. I totally believe that. Um, and I, I, you probably saw the news somewhat recently about the uh, U.S. jobs report and how folks were speculating that we would have a million new jobs in April, and it ended up being uh, just above, I think, uh, a quarter million, um, which is a big, big, big miss, even though we're adding jobs. Um, and I think we're, you know, everybody is hearing, at least anecdotally, that uh, I can't find people, that I'm hiring and I can't find people. Um, so, uh, I think, uh, what an interesting environment we're in now. Mark, and this, I, I this think goes we need back some political to your technology solutions. question, right? Yeah. You've got to do more with less. So if you can utilize technology to deal with your staffing, staffing issues, well, heck, I mean, that's, it's just, those are things that people are focused on right now because they can't find 
20 people. It's just to staff a project. So can they do things differently with technology, automation, AI, robot, in order to still serve the client, but not able to bring on those 20, those 20 FTE? Mm -hmm. So if you are um, a, let's say, a, some sort of BPO contact center operation, perhaps in the accounts receivable space or, um, or any other space, um, can you walk us through what your playbook looks like? Like the I want to get acquired playbook. How do you start to set up your business to make yourself as attractive as possible? Yeah, great question. So what we try to do is in our checklist, number one is we've got to figure out what is their secret sauce? What makes them different? Not every call center operation has their own culture, their own way of doing things, their own workflow. We're always trying to understand what makes them unique and different in the marketplace. And I always ask owners of that question when they say, look, I'm ready to sell. I try to understand and get out of them what makes them unique. Because once I could start figuring out what makes them unique, I can figure out who would buy them, who, what it looks like, all the other pieces tend to fall into play. The second piece that becomes really important is their financials. You'd be surprised that a lot of these companies that are in the lower middle market, their financial controls are not great. So if you've got time to plan, get your financial house in order. Get all your stuff, get three years of financials. They don't have to be audited, but get your financials in order so you can understand and share with the buyer what your revenue and earnings have looked like and be able to do it to show your adjusted EBITDA or your normalized EBITDA. Those are really important things we look at. And then the third item is usually around their clients and then their technology. Who are they representing? How long have they had those clients? And then the item that we always kind of red flag is if they've had any regulatory issues or any problems with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We're always looking for those kinds of things because we don't want a deal to blow up because they had a problem a year ago. Or we would just tell them to wait to clear those issues and then go out to the street. Makes a lot of sense. Um, can you think of any of the, um, when you think, when you ask the question, what makes you special? Can you think of any recent examples where uh, perhaps one of your clients uh, dug into that question and surprised themselves with the answer? Yeah, you'd, you'd be surprised. There are companies there that talk about the word culture but really don't take it seriously, Mark. Like, it's like window dressing. You know, people are like, yeah, we have amazing culture. We have happy hours on Fridays or we do this or that, but really it's window dressing. But what I usually like to do, and this is, you know, even pre-COVID or during COVID, but more pre-COVID is we go get on a plane or drive and we go see their operations because whatever we hear from them, we want to be able to see what they're telling us. And we had one recently where, you know, they were big in the utility market, in the utility call center BPO area. And I will just tell you, the one thing that really stood out to me was, because I spoke to a couple of their managers, their tenure of staff was unbelievable. Their tenure was like north of five or six years for most of their mid-level people. And you don't just, you, that is usually a telling sign. If there is attrition beyond belief, 
there's usually some issue or something you're just churning people. But if they've got long tenured staff, especially at the middle level management level, that's usually in our mind, a big selling point and stands out in our mind as a differentiator for the business because keeping people is the name of the game if you could do it and do it well. That's so interesting. It, it actually is a, a little counterintuitive because uh, you hear so many stories about um, we had one culture, the acquirer had another, and then uh, we got uh, acquired and then they decimated our culture. That was step number one. Um, you hear so many stories like that. Um, but I, I think you're saying that you know, it could be a major selling point if you truly invest in it. And it also needs to flow through to the metrics. You can't say we have an amazing culture, but our people, you know, come and yeah, go. Um, that's what I'm like saying. It's just care. like, or another example would be like one of the things that we always do when we go on these site visits to see these companies, and they're they tell us over the phone that their operations are spectacular, they're class A, but then when we show up, it's a complete mess, right? And you could just tell. Do the and especially when you go into the call center, the actual call center facility, to see how they're treating their people, how big the cubes are, all those things matter. Because when we bring in a strategic buyer that isn't doesn't view the world as cutthroat and that they actually look at their staff as human beings, those uh, sometimes I feel like I'm I'm the culture police. I'm always trying to figure out how to make sure I'm going to be able to marry the cultures up correctly, or there's no deal anyway. It's not going to be wasted. I'm going to waste my time. Mm -hmm. do, you, uh, do you ever recommend that when the strategic is visiting, you dress the place up? Or is that just like cheap and doesn't really they do, do it? We, we always suggest that. But, yeah. you know, if you're in a class B or a class C space, Dressing it up to a class A is really, really difficult. But the key is to be honest and forthcoming about it, right? And say, look, this is what we are. We're not out there with the, you know, with, with huge murals all over our call center facility like it's we're walking into a palace. We, we look at it differently. And here's how we, we approach that, you know, because we think about our culture and our environment this way. There's no right or wrong answer, but it's about how you communicated to the buyer in order to explain to them what you are versus what you're not. Going on a fishing expedition where they tell you that there's something that they're not is a really big waste of time. So we always just try to say, look, transparency, let's just call it what it is and, and, and work with what we've got. Yeah, there's no worse feeling than arriving at an operation that you thought was one thing and being like, what is this place? That's right. And it's, it isn't fun, whether it's onshore or offshore. I've seen everything in that regard. And so it's, um, it's an important factor in the equation that a lot of people forget about, but we put it up at the top of the list. Now, if you were to uh, flip the entire discussion and now start to look at it from the acquirer's side, um, what are some of the most important strategic goals that companies are setting in going and looking to acquire um, other companies, even potentially their competitors? Yeah, so it comes back to what we talked about earlier. Like, are they offshore? Are they onshore? What 
markets are they in? Are they in healthcare? And they're looking to get into other markets like financial services. Like where are they headed with their growth plan? And, and how do they want to get there? We also really dig in on the buyer side of the equation because we're trying to figure out, yeah, they may want to buy something today, but is that going to change in a month? And or have they never acquired a company before? And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but going in eyes wide open to figuring out how real they are as a buyer and their financial capabilities is something that we, we focus on too when we're evaluating buyer prospects when we're representing the seller. Because we're looking at them trying to figure out, are they really what they say they are too? And are they, does the cultures line up? Do they have a plan that makes sense? Are they simply going to close the operation down in the US and then move everything to India? What is their agenda? And we try to figure that out as quickly as we can for the benefit of our client, but also for the buyer, so we don't waste time. When you're in the process, what is the right balance of disclosure in, and I mean that in the sense of uh, giving away your secret sauce, because you don't want to give it away completely, um, but at the same time, making sure that you give the acquirer enough information that their needs are satisfied? Like, how do you do that dance? Yeah, there's no right, there's no academic answer to that, right? Every situation is dependent uh, on what's going on with their business and what makes them unique. But like everything in the call center space and just like the other markets we, we work in, they're incestuous. Everybody knows everybody. And confidentiality is beyond something that we take to the nth degree. So for us, our goal at the end, end of the day is to find a, a willing and able buyer that wants to acquire our selling client. And in order to do that, you got to let down, you got to let down some of your wall in order to get them comfortable with buying the business. So what we try to do in those situations is try to give them a little bit of information as we go along, not all of it all at once. Um, because if we do that, then if they walk away, they've got a lot of information at their fingertips. And frankly, an NDA is as good as the people that sign the NDA. So we take that very seriously. So in our materials, as, as an example, Mark, we don't put client names in there. We don't even put executive names in our materials intentionally because we don't want the materials to be gotten by a competitor and then used against them at some point in the future. Great point. It's, uh, it almost reminds me of the strategy that uh, top intelligence agencies use where they don't give uh, the full information to any individual. They just break up little components and give it to multiple individuals. So uh, no one has the full Think puzzle. Think about it like an executive summary versus a 100-page confidential information memorandum. There's, there's, there's ways to show to present a company without giving away the farm right out of the gate to mm -hmm. everybody. So let's talk uh, metrics for a second. It's obviously different for every business, but are there a couple of metrics that um, contact centers should really have on lock, like gross margin, and then- Gross yeah. margin, turnover rate, EBIT, their, their, uh, their percentage, of their payroll expense, to see how their payroll expense measures up. 
if for their total operating expenses, because payroll is their biggest cost. We also look at their technology expenses and compliance and regulatory costs as well. Those are big ones that we focus in on. What do the, the benchmarks look like for those metrics? Is there a place you can go that's readily accessible or is there just like a rule of thumb that gross margin above X is good? Yeah, so there, there isn't, you know, there are groups out there that put out different benchmarks, benchmark reports, and they tend to generalize because they're like, oh, every call center is the same. It's absolutely not the case. Because if you're working for a large bank and then you're comparing their more, their expense structure against a company doing call center work for uh, an e-commerce company, it's it's so different. Like you can't even, they're apples and oranges to try to build the comparison set out. So we really try to understand what they're about individually and see generally how they stack up against their the, the market. But when you think about it, you know, a good, well-run call center business should be able to throw off 15, 15 to 20% plus EBITDA margins. If they're well below that, or if they're generating 5%, it usually means that their client fee rates are very, very low and their work standards are very difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. It seems like if that's the case, you're in a pretty tough spot because if you're rates are low, you have to raise your rates. And if you raise your rates without raising the quality of your service, then you have this mismatch. Uh, so it seems like that, that would kind of, you'd be a little stuck there. You are, which is why the area that's been most commoditized in our industry is financial services. Because they, every year, if you do a, um, you know, you see how fee rates have gone just like this, they continue to go down, not up. Um, and it makes it even more challenging, especially for players that just want to be domestic. Um, if they don't have offshore or nearshore, could you imagine how, how uh, they're, they're basically, why even take the client on in the first place? So you've got those dynamics to contend with in terms of the operating benchmarks that these companies are fighting for or fighting through every day. So what do you do there? Um, you know, in, in my mind, you start trying to figure out what else can be done technology-wise, offshore, nearshore, or other lines of business that are inside those institutions that can become a profitable endeavor for you. Mm-hmm. If you're starting to say, okay, it's about time I look at offshore, nearshore, like let's, let's look at this thing seriously. Um, how do you make sure that you are expanding your operation in the right way uh, versus uh, getting yourself into a pickle? First thing we try to tell folks is understand from your existing client base what they're comfortable with. The last thing you want to do is start going and searching for a facility in Guatemala, and they're like, no, you can't move the business to Guatemala you waste a lot of time and effort. So find out from your clients what their comfort zones are with business being opera or your prospects. That is usually the first place because if they tell you that, well, we're already going to uh, South America, so we're comfortable with that. If your site's in Colombia or Brazil or wherever, that would be fine. And that usually will help drive where and how they set up an operation. Mm-hmm. 
I, I was talking to someone just the other day. In fact, it might have been today. <laughs> Time goes by fast. Uh, today about um, the changing comfort level in uh, outsourcing to India and how uh, India has been has had its ups and downs and appears to be in an up period again, uh, specifically for work um, where the representative is supposed to be uh, perhaps um, a little bit more persuasive um, and a little bit more hands-on with the customer, which is a really cool trend. Um, are, are you noticing other trends like that in, in terms of comfort level where, where clients are more or less comfortable um, with certain geographies? There's no doubt. And, and a lot of that, though, Mark, a lot of the comfort zone, if you look at pre-COVID, it really wasn't necessarily there. But COVID's changed that. People want to work with companies, especially the big um, institutions of the, for, you know, the Fortune 500. They want them to have global delivery capability for these reasons, like with, for because of pandemics or emergencies or whatever it may be. So they are really, really focused on global delivery. And places like India, which have had challenges with voice, have been shifting into other communication channels like chat um, in other areas. A lot of the delivery is being handled there or with email and text communications. It's not happening in the US, but it's happening over in India or the Philippines. So yeah, we're hearing that, hearing that a lot. And how about the, the education level of the agents? You know, I've heard two perspectives. One says um, you can find educated agents uh, anywhere in the world, and often um, you know, the the fo- the quality of talent is fantastic. So uh, you know why settle? And the other perspective I've heard is that uh, you know, well, the whole point of the contact center is that it's a little bit of trial by fire. So um, you know, who cares if you've had um, an undergraduate degree? Um, as long as you're willing to be a good communicator and uh, adaptable and coachable. So w- what are you seeing there? I, I, I don't think there's one, one shoe that fits all or whatever the analogy. I just, I feel like every, every center has, and depending on what the workflow is, there's a type, type of person that fits that type of workflow. I don't think it's one person or one country that fits every scenario correctly. Years ago, I sold a business in uh, Utah that was a direct response business. And all, it, well, actually half the staff were um, uh, mothers working at home, taking in sales leads from commercials that you would see late at night selling everything from ShamWows to whatever else. And they were phenomenal at taking those inbound calls and converting them. Could you get that same expertise and capability in, the, in India or the Philippines? I don't know, but this company did a phenomenal job of interviewing, hiring, and re- training and retraining these people that were in Utah, and they were rock stars at it, and their margins spoke for themselves. How cool is that? And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about culture. Um, that company had to have had a really distinctive culture. Awesome culture. 
their culture was bar none, one of the best I've ever seen. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I've heard uh, there's a um, a appointment setting company that I really respect um, on the East Coast, um, and they started out, um, and their whole thing was we hire only veterans. It was all veterans. And you can imagine uh, what kind of culture you build there if everybody is able to rally around their previous military service and um, has some expectations for discipline yeah. and, and country and community. Um, so maybe there's a big opportunity in just, I guess I could also see the flip side of that, but I was going to say maybe there's a big opportunity in hiring a lot of very similar people. But of course, the flip side of that is, well, then you have no diversity and you kind of have a narrow perspective. Yeah. That, it's so, so again, it's, I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think it's, you've got to look at where you're located, the type of business that you're managing through your center to figure out what is appropriate for, for you. And I think that's a huge selling point when you go to sell the company down the line and they say, you've, you've developed a really unique culture, workflow, and expertise that is very difficult for somebody else to just jump into organically, which is why they've got to buy their way in. Where do you think the M&A market is heading broadly for contact centers right now? M&A broadly is going to be very active between now and year end, all driven by Biden's plans with capital gains. I think you're going to see a heavy amount of deal activity between now and year end in the call center, collections, and healthcare revenue cycle management areas, because capital gains is likely to go up if Biden gets it through, you know, in the four, it could be 42, 43% all in, you know, right now we're in the, in the 20s. So that is a huge shift. So if you're thinking about selling and that gets passed by year end, you may, you may be stuck at that rate for four years mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. longer. So then now let's imagine all the marbles get shaken up and everything kind of falls in its place. And we look out not just one year or five years, but 10 years, look at the end of the decade, 2030. What do you think the contact center landscape looks like then? I, I've thought about it. I've written about it. I, I really think people have this view that it's only going to be a robot. Uh, and I, as much as I think it will look very much like that, there will still be human intervention that is needed in some form or capacity inside of these companies. How it sits between in office, remote, all of those things is up for grabs right now as we come out of the pandemic. But I definitely see more and more robotics taking hold in this industry, especially as more things start shifting from voice to non-voice communications, inbound, outbound. Michael, super informative. Thank you so much for all this. Uh, this was totally awesome. Uh, and uh, to give a quick shout out to your business, what's the name of your business again? And where can people find you? It's uh, Corporate Advisory Solutions. Uh, you can find us at all the 
social media platforms, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, we're, uh, we're, we're everywhere. So, uh, Mark, it's awesome, man. Thank you for, uh, for inviting you me are, on your uh, podcast. You are so welcome, my friend. Talk to you soon. All right, man. Talk to you.